Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are here with us. And we give you thanks that you are here or there with our brothers and sisters who are gathering around the world, offering up worship to you, different styles, different emphases, but all part of your one body, speaking many different languages from many different races. And we give you thanks for the spirit which unites us all. And we ask that that spirit which unites us all might breathe through my words this morning so that we might hear you and that we might respond. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were asked to name one hero from the Bible, who would it be? Okay, and I'm, I'm, let's limit it to the Old Testament so that everybody doesn't just go, Jesus. Uh, if you had to name one hero from the Bible, who would it be? David? Jeremiah? Jeremiah? Any others? Job? Yeah, all sorts of reasons. Yeah, and I, and I sort of thought about this question. I sort of thought was maybe the, maybe the one that I would think of was David. He faces up to a great big giant who is much, much bigger than him when everybody else was running scared. And I know, Alan, that, 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 he, was, that he was a pistol shooter in, a, in an age of uh, artil artillery warfare, so I do, I do know the backstory to it. Or maybe you think of Esther facing up to a great giant, who, or sorry, fist, fist, uh, risking her life to save her whole people, daring to approach a king with, without invitation to question one of his decrees. Or maybe you'd I go for Daniel, you know, ready to go to the lion's den. Or his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were prepared to face the fiery furnace rather than bow to an idol. Maybe you think about Moses, who led people from, the, you know, from Egypt to the promised land. Or maybe Elijah, standing up to Ahab, Jezebel, the prophets of Baal, all that. Or Ruth, leaving behind everything she knew and risking so much to protect Naomi. And ultimately, although she wasn't to know this at the time, leading to the birth of David, which brings us around full circle. And these names and their stories have been part of my life for as long as I can remember, because I grew up in church. And they were staples of my Sunday school diet. Some of them will crop up again over the next few weeks as we make our way through Hebrews 11. Because we started a new series last week based around this chapter. And we, I called it Walking with God. And this chapter winds its way through some well-known and some not-so-well-known names and stories from our Old Testament. 
And they're all about people who stuck with God, often through great difficulty, because of the hope of what God had promised to them. And last week I mentioned how, although this is a chapter that's greatly loved by many, it doesn't just drop into the letter in a vacuum. It has a purpose. It is written to a bunch of people finding it tough to stick with God. People who may have wondered if it was worth it. And the aim of this passage was to remind them that this is nothing new or unusual. The life of faith has always been like this. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were going to write a chapter like Hebrews 11, and I was wanting to inspire people to have great faith, I think I might have wanted a big name front and center to kick the whole thing off. Maybe one of the names I had on the screen just a moment ago. But at first glance, the writer to the Hebrews starts with a couple of very odd, low-key choices. He goes for Abel and Enoch. Abel and Enoch. I wonder what anybody can tell me about either of them. How many great miracles did Abel do? Yep, you've said them all. How many super sermons do we read about Enoch preaching in the Bible? Yep, again, 100%. You've got the lot. And we probably don't know a lot. And that's not a result of not knowing your Bible. It's just that there's not a lot to tell. You may know a little bit about Abel. Abel was the second son of Adam and Eve. You might know he was a shepherd. He makes an offering to God, and God accepts his offering, but doesn't accept his brother Cain. And this makes Cain angry, so he lures Abel into the fields and kills him. And that's Abel's claim to fame. He is the first murder victim in the Bible. He's gone before the opening credits of Midsummer Murders start rolling. And there are a couple of things, that odd things, about Abel's inclusion. At no point in his admittedly very brief cameo in Genesis does he talk about his faith. And another thing is, the writer of Hebrews says uh, this. He says, by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. Which is more than he managed when he was alive. Because if you read the story of Cain and Abel, Abel does not say a single word in the entire story. At least until he's dead, when his blood cries out from the ground. And if we know very little about Abel, we know even less about Enoch. His entire story is covered in three verses in Genesis 5. 
So it says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father to Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. So what do we know about Enoch? He became a father. And the short snippet suggests that for some reason, fatherhood seems to have had a significant impact on Enoch because after that point, he starts walking faithfully with God. And from that point on, what do we know about him? He walked faithfully with God. And he walked faithfully with God. And he walked faithfully with God. And that's it. And he lived at a time when the moral trajectory of the, of the narrative is downward. And, and then we're mysteriously not told that he died, but mysteriously he was no more because God took him away. It's like God said to him, you know, we've been walking around for quite a while, and I keep coming over to your patch. How about you come and walk on my patch for a while? And Enoch did. And he just never went back. But apart from the name of one of his kids, all we know about Enoch was that he walked with God. So two slightly odd examples, when you see what, particularly when you see what's coming up later, uh, for the writers of Hebrews to open. And maybe it was that he started working chronologically, although he doesn't really stick to that. Uh, but maybe there was something a bit more. Perhaps it was important to start out not with a big name, with someone who didn't have the big heroic deeds. Because if it started there, we might have got the wrong end of the stick. We might have thought, wow, but that was something about that. So maybe it was just as important that there's nothing spectacular about Abel and Enoch. Nothing that they have done that we could not also do. Because they had the most important factor. They recognized that the foundation of faith was a relationship of trust in God. And it's like the writer sums up the story of both in verse 6, when he says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So, what is it about these two characters and stories that attracts the writer of Hebrews. The first family was dysfunctional. It seems they had a favoritism issue. But not in the way if you read the story you might expect. Cain was the firstborn. And that was a big deal. When Cain is born, Eve makes a big song and dance about it. You know, she, she declares, with the Lord's help, I have brought forth a man. 
His name Cain, which means brought forth, is derived from that. But as is so often the case, second time around, it's not such a big deal. Later, she just gave birth to Abel. No big fuss. We're not even told why he was called Abel. And it seems at home, Cain was the golden child. Abel was just the spare. And this hints at a theme that will crop up again and again in Genesis and beyond, where God looks on favor on the one who is often overlooked by those closer to home. Cain becomes a farmer. He works the soil. Abel looks after sheep. And at some point, we're not told when or why, each of them brings an offering to God. And Cain brings literally some of the fruits of his labor, some of the produce he had produced, like a harvest Sunday. Abel brings the fat portions of some of the firstborn of his flock. And we're told God looks on f- with favor on Abel's offering, but not on Cain's. And Genesis offers no direct reason why that's the case. It just is. We're left to surmise. And nor does Genesis tell us how either of them knew whether their offering has has been accepted or not. It just seems they did. But it got Cain angry, and God challenges him and says, Cain, why are you so down in the mouth and angry? It's not you that I've rejected. If you just do what is right, I'll accept your offering too. But watch out, Cain. Sin is crouching at the door. But you can or may master it. But Cain doesn't make that choice. He makes a different choice. He lures his brother Abel out in the field and kills him. And you know, if you just come to this story blind, without any real sort of history of it, you know, you could be forgiven for reading this and thinking, you see, that's the problem with God. You just can't make it keep him happy. What is it about the offerings? I mean, you could argue that Cain's took more effort. I've grown stuff in my garden this year. It was hard work. Abel's offering, it cost the sheep more than it cost him. And perhaps that's part of the point. Cain wanted to be accepted on the basis of what he had done. Cain somehow wanted God to accept him on Cain's terms. But there's something else here. Abel presents the prime cuts of his firstborn. Cain, sorry, Abel presents some of the prime cuts of his firstborn. Cain, it's just some of the fruit he had. It's like Abel's out to give the best he could. Cain, well, he's just fulfilling the obligation. We're not told there was anything special or even especially sacrificial about his offering. It was just some of what he had. And I would suggest Cain's going through the motions. 
that God is someone in Cain's eyes who needs to be appeased. Just give him a nod of the head, a tip of the hat. Whereas Abel recognizes that God deserves the best that he can offer. And you know, Cain's not the last to think that way. We can live with that notion that God is somehow down on us and needs to be appeased. And if we just offer enough, just enough, he'll see us right, or at least he won't be too mad at us. Or on the reverse side, we can see God as a grudging God. He, oh, he accepts us. But he kind of has to, isn't it? It's his job. Does it ever occur to you that God enjoys your company? That God loves having you around? That God loves it when we choose to spend time with Him, even if it's for a few moments over the Lectio 365 app or whatever. Oh, it's possible, however faithfully we do it, that you know, there are times when, you know, I'll own that, yep, there's a sense of getting it over with, getting one thing ticked off the list, not feeling guilty. And even if we genuinely go in into it thinking we can get something out of it that will help us throughout the day, there can be something a little bit transactional about it. Do you know, for some people, even Christian people, God's a bit like eating your greens. You know, somehow or other, it's supposed to be good for you. But a lot of people don't enjoy it. When God just wants to spend time with you just because. And that appears to be what Enoch discovered. That God likes spending time with him. You know what else he discovered? that God was good company. It wasn't because of anything spectacular Enoch had done or avoided doing that he makes this list. It is simply that he walked with God. He invited God into the everyday situations of his life so that even his passing wasn't a massive interruption from one life to the next. It was just he'd been walking with God all the time. All he'd done was change venues. It was just like a logical next step. It's a saying that I repeat quite often, and it's not mine, it's Philip Yancey's from What's So Amazing About Grace. And I say this quite frequently, but it says, there is nothing you can do to make God love you less, and there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. Well, I want to suggest something else this morning. 
And at first glance, it might feel quite contradictory, but it's not. It's this. There is nothing you can do that will force God to do more for you than God wants to do for you. But you can live your life in a way in which God ends up doing less than he wants. There is nothing you can do that will force God to do more for you than God wants to do for you. But you can live your life in a way in which God ends up doing less than he wants. See, I wholeheartedly believe in grace. But there is much of life where the more you invest in it, the more joy and fulfillment it will bring you. It's possible that we can love the gift or the reward rather more than we love the giver. We can want just enough of Jesus to sneak us through the gates of heaven, but not so much that it actually changes how we live. It's possible to give God what we think we have to. But no more. And all the time, Jesus is holding out more to you. Has so much more to you. He says, I so long to give you this. But it might mean letting go of something you already find too important. Jesus could be holding something out to you, but he can't give it to you because your hands are already full. Jesus himself puts it this way. He says, ask, keep asking and it'll be given to you. Seek, keep seeking, and you'll find it. Knock, keep knocking, those doors will open for you. Keep at it. It's just that all too often we settle for less. That's enough, God. Thanks very much. Or another verse that's greatly loved, and Lynn, uh, actually, no, I, I sort of thought the one person I didn't mention was Jeremiah, but Jeremiah is, comes up, it's a verse, it's greatly loved and found in Jeremiah 29, and you'll probably know the verse as soon as I start it. It's where God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. I've been at so many events where speakers and leaders have prayed that over individuals, whole groups of people. It is a greatly loved promise. It crops up again and again. But that's not where Jeremiah ends. 
he adds, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. You know, it's possible to want the first half of that without wanting to be too inconvenienced by the second. God doesn't settle for half measures. It's not just about believing that there is a God out there somewhere. And it's not even about believing that this God is powerful and could help you. Good. But that can lead to a very business-like transactional view of God. It's another thing altogether to believe and to discover God's generosity, God's longing to enfold us in His love. That knowledge that He is not dying on us. He is on our side. He is offering us a hope and a future, and that His longing for us is good. He wants that so much that He came amongst us in Jesus to reveal Himself in a way that no other way could do. And when we come to an understanding of a God who is a longing and a hope and a future for us, and that it's good, we truly discover a God who is worthy of worship. A God who we deal with not out of obligation, but out of love. For the more we throw ourselves into Him, the more we discover that love. And the more we discover the plans and the hope that God has for us. Not just for this life, but into eternity. So we may not know much about Abel. But we know that he considered God worthy of the best he could bring. We may not know much about Enoch, but we know he discovered a God who wanted to keep company with him and in turn was pretty good company to keep. Neither of them had sparkling tales which wowed this small boy in Sunday school. They had, but they had the foundation on which all the others built. They put their trust in God, and God. they knew that God could be trusted with whatever they committed to Him. And in time, that enabled them to commit more and more. For theirs was not a God who was best kept at arm's length. He was a God who wants to, us to walk with him, to know him more deeply, 
to taste and to keep tasting that he is good. He is on our side. And he rewards those who truly seek him. Let's just be still for a moment. Can I invite you to cup your hands? As I reflect on what I've been sharing this morning, uh, I was taken back to Leslie's talk a couple of weeks ago at the guide period when she asked us about what we wanted to trust God with. You may have written something on a piece of paper that day, brought it to the front, and taken a lollipop in return. I wonder, is there something God wants you to trust Him with? I'm wondering, is there so much more that God wants to give you? but he can't because your hands are already full. And it might mean letting something go. I invite you to sit with that for a moment. And in that moment of stillness, if you are ready, simply part your hands, let it fall, offer it to God, inviting Him to fill your empty hands with all He longs to give you.
grace and peace be with you.